Good morning. It's great to be together on a Sunday morning, worshiping God, singing, and uh, being unified uh, in this amazing place and with this amazing fellowship. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we've been going through a series called Blink. And uh, don't blink or you miss it because it's short. It's only six parts. And uh, today we actually are going to close it out. This is number six. I know last week everyone's like, boo, it's the end of the series. I guess you don't feel that way today. That's okay. That's all right. We're closing out the series. We've been studying out parts of the book of Luke. And so we can open our Bibles there. Uh, We'll be in Luke chapter eight in just a minute. And uh, as Al Baker quoted a few weeks ago, Ferris Bueller says, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And especially at the pace of New York City and all that we have going on and how fast our brains are moving and processing different thoughts, we needed a time, a series and a focus to be able to really zero in on what our spiritual lives look like and on how Jesus can be imitated in them. So that's what our focus has been. You know, today's Palm Sunday and Christians around the globe are celebrating uh, these days that lead up to Jesus's resurrection. And while we won't be reading about the triumphal entry today and Jesus into Jerusalem, some of the more traditional passages, I feel like today we're going to read a text that's extremely appropriate as we prepare for Easter. So let's look together at Luke chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 40. And as you see on the screen, uh, we'll be skipping around a little bit. Luke chapter 8, here we go, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. For they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And again, for the sake of time, we'll skip the story of the bleeding woman, verse 43 through 48, and jump back into verse 49. It says, while Jesus was still speaking... Someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. He said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she'll be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. All right, let's stop there. Some of us are familiar with this uh, passage. Some of us may be reading it for the first or second time. Uh, It's a story that's recorded not just here in Luke, but also in two of the other four Gospels, in uh, Matthew and also Mark. It's also the first recorded resurrection in the New Testament. Of course, we now, uh, as a Christian audience, think about resurrection. It's kind of common. We understand Jesus uh, raised from the dead. That's where we put our faith. But back then, to see something like this happen would have floored the community. This is a huge, huge deal. There are actually three resurrections that lead up to Jesus' resurrection. 
the first one is here, a 12-year-old girl that had just died. Another one is the widow of Nain, where she had died and they were already into their funeral procession. And then the third one is Lazarus, who died and was buried and was there for a few days before he was raised. And it's almost as if Jesus is ramping up to the big one. You know what I'm saying? Uh, It's like he's getting them ready. He's preparing their faith. He starts with someone who just passed and then a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And then he raises from the dead on the third day as Messiah. And I have three points for us to talk about. All of them are going to be from the text we just read. Uh, So if you uh, underline your Bibles or you highlight them on your mobile device, uh, this is a good one to dive down into because we're going to extrapolate as much as we can get from the text. Here's point number one. The stakes are high. The stakes are high. We'll focus in on verse 40 through 42. You know, what what does it mean when you say, I stake my claim in something, you know, uh, this is mine. This is where I, I stake my investment, my life, my most prized possessions. And basically, if your prized possessions, if where your stakes are, are being threatened, then you're going to do whatever it takes to protect them. And when the stakes are high, when your life is on the line or someone you love, or there is a great threat, you're in an emergency level. You're at a desperate place in your heart. And that's exactly where this father was. Jairus, the synagogue ruler. As I was reading the commentaries in history about what this position means, it's almost like saying he's the president. He's the president of this organization. He is uh, the CEO. He's the manager of all the ongoings of the synagogue. And if you guys remember from our last lesson last Sunday, this is the same synagogue that the centurion of Capernaum gifted to the Jews. Remember that? He had funded it with his own money and he came to Jesus earlier with a servant who he wanted to be healed and Jesus healed that servant. And so Jairus would have been well aware of what was going on with Jesus in his town with his synagogue. Now, this makes special mention that this is not just one of many children that the synagogue ruler has. What does it say? It says, my only child, my daughter, my only daughter. And it's mentioned three times. And the commentators say, well, maybe he has many sons, but only one daughter. But most agree on the way it's written and compared to the other texts, this is his only child. And so you start thinking about the devastating impact this has. Not just that he would lose his very child, the love of his life, but also that uh, this would be the end of his name, which the Jews uh, felt very uh, strongly about. And so he's imagined the emotions that this dad is feeling for his sick daughter. As I read the story again and again in preparation for this lesson, uh, I couldn't help but think about my 12 year old daughter. And for those of us who have children and just to think about the emotions, the unimaginable emotions that you'd be feeling. And maybe some of us even have felt feeling that our child is threatened or is ill or may die or die. So here he is, and we're imagining in his mind what he's going through. And what does he do when he comes to Jesus? He kneels. He kneels. This is a man that doesn't kneel. He doesn't need to kneel because he doesn't yield to the other authorities. He is the authority of Capernaum in his world. He's the religious authority. He's the president, CEO, synagogue leader. He's the ruler of the religious section of life. And for the Jews, that was the cream of the crop. So he was on top. He didn't kneel. He didn't beg. He didn't plead. That's not what was in his nature or his training. But when you're in a desperate situation, 
You do what it takes, right? So he kneels. He humbles himself. He is the leader of the community, the highest social status, but he is desperate. And then you start thinking through the story. And of course, the news comes that the child has died. And Luke leaves a lot of medical clues. Of course, Luke, the one who writes this, is a doctor. He's medically trained. And so he pays special detail and attention to anything that has to do with the body, the physical form. And so illness, uh, different types of leprosy, the cripple. Uh, in this case, someone who has died, he pays close attention to that. You know, in the New American Commentary, these people that were mourning for her loss... Uh, they were professional mourners in many cases, and uh, the commentaries write about how they were official mourners hired to come and weep and wail for the deceased. So enough time has passed for them to be able to come. The message had already been sent to Jesus uh, and to Jairus that the daughter had died. They're on their way anyway. We don't know how the story's going to end. And the mourners are there, and they're already weeping and wailing. The stakes are as high as they come in this story. It's life or death. And by the time Jesus is hearing Jairus' story, the father believes that there's still time. If you would just come now, we could heal her and everything would be okay. And so it feels like time has run out by the time he hears the message that she's gone. See, the stakes are as high as they come. Let me make a couple of applications here for us before we go on to the next point. I believe the stakes are high for us as well. And I think about why this story relates to us. Uh, some of us can connect with it because maybe we've lost a child or we relate to that pain. Uh, a lot of us can't relate to that specific kind of pain. And so we're not sure how does this connect to us? And I started thinking, you know, our salvation is the most precious treasure we have access to. You know, the stakes are as high as they come when we talk about our eternal destiny, our fate for eternity. You know, the key to eternity, being right with God, forgiven of our sins, is priceless. You know, there are billionaires that are getting older, and we see a trend with people that are mega, mega rich, trying to figure out the key to the meaning of life. And I don't know all their situations. I only read what you read, but they're searching for answers, and they're spending the fortune that they worked so hard to get on this search for meaning in life. Many of them are trying to find it in charity, benevolence, to leave their legacy in some way that makes a difference. But sometimes I feel like that Indiana Jones quote, they're digging in the wrong place. A lot of good's being done, don't get me wrong, but to find the true answer to the meaning of life, you've got to dig in God's word. That's the only way you're going to find it. And so when you're digging in all these other places, searching, 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 they're just going to continue to spend millions of dollars and continue to search. You know, we can look at the story of a parent losing a child and say, well, of course, that's a desperate situation. I would do anything if I was him. But sometimes our salvation is threatened and we don't blink. Satan attacks, sin creeps in, bitterness is harbored for weeks, months, and years. Critical attitudes fester in our heart. We don't do anything about it. We're not desperate. It's not an emergency situation. Our salvation is threatened and we act like nothing's happening. It's another day. And sometimes we just get too busy. 
Salvation is chipped away by the other priorities of our life. "Ah, I just don't have time for it anymore. And like a car that was once so precious to us. I know some of us in New York do not own cars. I've never dreamed of owning a car. Some of us have and might and maybe do. And you buy that thing and you're so excited about it. And over time, you, you know, you don't change the oil like you used to. Don't change the tires like you used to. Don't you love that many of us don't have to deal with that ever? It's awesome. I remember owning a car, though, and my first car and just, oh, it's so awesome. My wheels get around, take good care of my baby. But then as time goes on, eh, it's a little dirty. It's a little rusty. Ah, the oil, what are you going to do? And the love for it fades. In the world, people talk about that in relationship all the time. Well, we were married for 10 years and then it just faded. You know, it's just like a car. I didn't, didn't take it in, didn't maintenance it, didn't love up on it. And eventually it faded. That's just what happens. I'm ready for a new car. I hope we don't treat salvation like that. But sometimes we do. Oh, I got it a long time ago. It was bright and shiny and awesome. And you know what? It's always going to be there. But I like to keep it in the garage. Or it doesn't need a new oil change. Or you know what? It's fine the way it is. I don't want to make it better. You guys hear where I'm coming from? So we've got to make that effort that we realize the stakes are as high as they ever could be. My salvation's on the line. I'm going to work hard for it. We've got to be willing to kneel, willing to beg, willing to ask for help, willing to plead, willing to change up the schedule, whatever it takes to maintenance our salvation, to make our election sure. There's a brother in the church in Los Angeles that I was very close to, still am. And he was going through a hard time last year, hard time in his faith, being attacked on all sides, health, relationships, things that were happening, family, you name it. And mostly he found his heart getting harder. And he was getting with different folks, but again, just not seeing the change. And we were talking on the phone one time and I'm 3000 miles away. So I'm just doing my best to encourage and challenge, do whatever I can. And he said, you know what? How about I fly you out to L.A. and we spend some time? I think I would love to just get a little bit more time uh, to talk about these things. And I know we have a close relationship and I'm thinking, man, that's a lot of pressure. I'm no Jesus. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fix anything, but he's like, no, I really insist. I want you to come out. I want to I want to do whatever it takes. And we were close. You know, somehow sometimes you can hear things from a close friend that you might not be able to hear from other people. So sometimes you have that relationship with people. And so I went out there and we both left, uh, change up the schedule and work and families and all of that to make this thing work. And the very first thing we did, picked me up from the airport. We drove uh, to near the water, near the ocean. And we just went on a prayer walk for miles. We didn't even say that much. We just got into prayer. And it, it, it's one of those things that when you start, it just all starts coming out. So I don't know how many hours passed, but it went from day to night. And after tears, and I, I knew I was hungry. I'm like, we haven't eaten in a long time. <laughs> we just prayed, cried it out. We spent time confessing, digging deep into the Bible, into our past and into our present, all the things we were struggling with. And we ended our, our short couple of days together 
Uh, he had volunteered him and me because he knew I was coming. He paid for it uh, to pay uh, to play basketball in a tournament called Hoops for Hope. Uh, in this one, you pay you play 12 hours of basketball straight and you raise money for Hope Worldwide. So he wrote me into that one. But that's how we ended our time together. And you know what? We needed that, too. He needed to cleanse the spirit and the body. And I think back on that time, you know what? I got to lift him up. That was a bold move for him to do. He's a business owner, got a staff that's dependent on him, family responsibilities, leader in the church. And he said, my salvation is the most important thing in my life. I don't care what it takes. I don't care how much I got to pay. I, this is priceless. This is my salvation. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And that's got to be our spirit. It's more than any great car. It's the most prized possession that we have access to. You know, his wife is a Christian and he told her the idea and she's like, yeah, get John out here. You've been in a funk. You need to get out of it. There was a lot of support from her. Amen. But I tell you, if you're in a funk right now, you feel like you've been spiritually out of whack. It's time to get radical. It's time to make a bold move and to decide that the stakes are high enough to justify me doing something different and not just continuing down the status quo because if we keep doing the same things, there's not going to be anything different. So the stakes are high. Number two, the reasons to believe. The reasons to believe. In verse verse 49 and 50, we zero in and we're imagining this moment that Jairus heard the message that his daughter had just died. What was he thinking, you think, in that moment? You know, for me, if I'm begging a doctor, a healer, you know, teacher, whoever I had confidence in to be able to bring, to heal my 12-year-old girl, and I'm urgent and desperate, and I'm like, come on, come on, come on. And as I'm doing that, and as it seems like he's on his way, a woman comes up out of nowhere. And there's this interaction, and there's this conversation, and like I said, we don't have time to read the whole story, but it was a woman who'd been bleeding for a long time. And she touches the, the tassel of Jesus' cloak and she's healed. And there's this conversation, who touched me? And, and they find each other out and she was healed by her faith. And there's all these implications and it's an amazing story. But we forget sometimes when we're reading about that story about the dad. The dad who's waiting for Jesus to heal his daughter. What would you be thinking if you were him? You know what? You can wait. I'm sorry. And I don't want to be insensitive but you're alive and you've been bleeding for 12 years. And I'm, I'm sorry that that's happened, but can he just save my daughter's life and then come back to you later? I'm just being honest. Would anyone else think that? I don't know. Now I didn't say that in the Bible. I'm purely speculating here as a father of a 12 year old daughter. You know, doctors prioritize different patients, right? This one's about to die. This one, you know, we have a little time. So let's prioritize. Do what we got to do. Save as many as possible. And so if I were the dad and I heard that message, sorry, she's gone. Oh, I would have an attitude. You know, one of my problems is I have a hard time feeling hurt. I don't know if you relate to that. I go from the, the whatever happens straight to anger. That's my natural tendency. I, I skip some steps there. and I've learned to kind of slow it down. You know, the watch pot never boils. So I've been learning to watch the pot, you know, <laughs> slow it down. Wife, how am I doing? Am I doing all right? All right. All right. I got a thumbs up from wife. 
worked hard at this, studied every single scripture there is about anger in the Bible. You name it, I studied it, prayed on it, fasted about it. I really wanted to change that in my character and I, I feel like I'm making it a strength. But my natural tendency is to counter, right? Attack, counterattack, attack, counterattack. It's just something in me. I don't know where it comes from. So it's there. So again, in my nature, and you know, our natures tend to be exposed a little bit more raw when we're in a situation that's an emergency situation. So I'm just trying to understand what the dad was feeling. You know what I'm saying? And then I start thinking, why did I come here anyway? Why did I come all the way out here? I could have been at home with my daughter in her last moments to hear her last words, to say, I love you, to hold her hand. Oh, the pain. You know, what's so amazing about Jesus. He immediately recognizes the struggle and he jumps right in. He says, Hey, I, let's talk here. Let's talk. Don't give in to all that. Don't give in to all that. If you have faith, it's going to be okay. I'm going to make it right. Tough proposition, huh? Again, what would you be thinking? She's dead. It's done. It's over. We had the opportunity and it's passed. But Jesus expects and believes that he can have that kind of faith. Radical faith that what is dead can be raised. Sometimes it seems like Jesus expects too much of us. Just believe. And it just doesn't seem that easy, does it? And here is an intense situation. You know, and I share about how I would be if I was there and all that. And you know what? Honestly, I just think that's why I'm not in the story. That's why you're not in the story. Jairus is in the story. And he musters up that faith. I think I would have missed it. I would have blinked. I would have said fighting words. Uh, you know, I would have gotten in trouble. I would have made things worse. And you know what? The whole crowd misses it too. And that's what we've been studying out these last few weeks. That the, so many times Jesus is doing things and the crowd misses it. They blink and they miss the message. And the message here is simply about faith. Jesus was actually working on Jairus' faith. Think about what's just happened. He healed the bleeding woman right in front of him. What could have been a distraction in his mind actually might have been Jesus trying to increase Jairus' faith because he knew he was about to go heal his daughter. He has empirical proof right in front of him that Jesus can do the amazing. And he would have heard of the centurion's servant being healed as well. So he's got these experiences, his empirical evidence. Sometimes things happen right in front of our noses and we miss it, right? Arlene and I were a young married couple years ago uh, trying to get help in our young marriage and we needed a lot of it. Uh, we would get once a week with one particular married couple who's a little older than us and had uh, children, uh, three of them. And so we'd go over there for dinner or, or whatever at the, around that time, I think every Tuesday night. And uh, we always came with a lot. You know, we were like, hey, we're fighting. People in our ministry are fighting. We need all kinds of help with fighting. And so please help us. And so they would help us out. But then uh, it, it changed. You know, it went from sort of Q&A and help and training to more of a time where we would just sit with their family and have dinner together. So I start coming home with Arlene at night after this time with them. And I'm thinking, I feel like we're getting ripped off here. I don't mind helping out and sitting with the kids and all that. But like, 
where is the help that we need? Because we need help. I came with questions. None of them answered. Then it doubled. The next, I got 18 now. Now I got 27. <laughs> Kids aren't going to help me. So I'm in an attitude. And I'm like, I'm going to talk to him next week. Just forget, forget about this. This is not working. Arlene looked at me. Never forget the look on her face. In a very humble way. She said, John, I actually think you might be missing the point. I said, huh? New. She goes, we're getting front row seats on how to learn how to raise a Christian family. How to be a husband and a wife. It's the best possible way we could learn. And I like sank way down into my seat right there. Please hide me. So happy I didn't talk to them, right? And of course, it was amazing and it was true. And when my heart changed, it was all these things started opening up. And I'm seeing how the dad would interact with the son. I imitate those things to this day. It was right in front of me. You know, God is always, I believe, building our faith, whether we see it or not. It says that even sometimes when we're asleep, the seed of faith is being grown by God. I bet if you take a minute, you can start to recognize all the little ways that God has been building your faith. He's faithful, faithful father, using situations and experiences, circumstances, hardships, victories to build your faith. If you're willing. He's building your conviction, allowing you to wrestle, giving you opportunity, opportunity to learn, to grow. You know, he didn't put David in front of Goliath right off the bat. What did he do first? He allowed him a victory over the lion and over the bear, right? To ramp up his faith. He gave him those victories and Jairus got to see those victories too. Those miracles right in front of him. So he could believe in that moment that the impossible is actually possible. And that was more than enough. More than as many reasons as he needed to believe in Jesus in that moment. And I got to ask you this. Don't we all have enough reasons to believe? Haven't we seen miracles? The miracle of conversion. People becoming Christians that we didn't think ever could become Christians. Some that we reach out to for two decades or more. The miracle of giving and seeing whole churches planted and grown with the help of our faith, our special contribution. The miracle of answered prayers. The miracle of reconciliation and forgiveness. The miracle of unified diversity, faithful friends, all the things we've been talking about in the Luke series. The miracle of surviving as a disciple of Jesus in New York City. Miracle. Can I get an amen, right? Amen. Not easy. It's all there. It's enough to believe. And because of Jairus' faith, Jesus heals the girl. And in Mark's version, he took her up by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up in the Aramaic. You know, I met a woman named Talitha down in Brooklyn a couple years ago. And I said, Talitha? She said, yeah, Talitha. I said, like the Bible? She goes, yeah, like the Bible. I said, you have a lot to live up to, don't you? Get it? Live, live up to? No? Okay. Point number three. Sometimes it doesn't land. It's okay. Point number three. And finally, the wake up call, the wake up call. Jesus said that she was sleeping. Verse 51 to 56. 
Some scholars have used this to explain away the miracle. They'll argue that the girl actually was just asleep. They had made a mistake. It was a misdiagnosis. They were about to bury her alive. So Jesus comes in, says, no, actually, she's alive. And whatever happens, then she wakes up and she's having breakfast. No, no, the official mourners are already there. They knew what they were doing. The family's there. The funeral preparations are being made. She died. She's dead. And this is such a weird, bizarre, ridiculous thing for Jesus to say that how does the crowd there respond? They laugh. Now, I don't know about you, but you don't laugh when someone's just died, right? I mean, that's just sort of, that's the one thing you don't do. You don't tell jokes and, you know, sometimes, but, uh, and sometimes you don't know what else to do or there's so much emotion. You don't know how to get it out. And sometimes it expresses itself in these kinds of ways, right? I don't know what the crowd was thinking in that moment. Maybe it was a release of tension. Maybe they just thought he was absolutely ridiculous. Maybe they thought it was so crazy. They didn't know how to respond. It just came out. Either way, it betrays their faithlessness about the situation. They blurt out. They're mocking him. They're laughing. How, how dare you disrespect what's going on here by saying that? I don't know. We know they laugh. So how does Jesus respond? He kicks them out. <laughs> he said, okay, well, you and your faithlessness, step out of the room. He brings in a few of the guys. You guys are faithful, right? Yeah, we're faithful. Mom and dad, all right, come I need you to be faithful. All right, we're faithful. Brings them in the room and makes the wake-up call. Now, let's talk about the wake-up call for a minute, just in our lives. Alarm clock, phone, get in the zone here for a minute. Who loves a good wake-up call? Oh, there's two. I think two people. God bless you, right? So I'm assuming the rest of us that didn't raise our hands, we don't necessarily love the alarm going off at whatever a.m. it is to wake us up from that beautiful slumber, that awesome dream, but that perfect meal you were having or that raise you were hoping for, or whatever it is, right? That dream so awesome. How many people have songs for alarm clock? All right? How many people have really annoying beeps as alarm clock? All right. I know we've got all kinds of different ones that wake us up. Anyone put it on the other side of the room because you're a snooze freak. You just keep hitting the snooze over. All right. You guys are so honest. You know, that's my nature, too. I've been doing a little bit better, but it's hard for me. Let's get together afterward. Start a recovery group. All right. Snooze recovery. Yeah. You know, my grandma, whenever she would stay with us, um, Grandma Shirley would sing to us to wake us up. And uh, my mom, you know, she would remember the song when grandma would sing it. And then, you know, I'd hear it for several weeks after grandma left. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. We're all in our places with bright, shiny faces. And this is the way and this is the way to start a new day. <laughs> Didn't appreciate grandma in those moments. Or mom subsequently. Take your happy song out of here. I'm sleeping. All right. So we don't necessarily like that feeling. Why? Why don't we love the alarm clock? Because it messes up our comfort. We love comfort. And we love our comforter. The blankets. The coat. You know what I'm saying? It's cold and you're all cozied up. Like a cocoon. Just perfectly wrapped. 
No cold air is getting in at any angle. You know what I'm talking about? Like this morning. Like a church. All right, church. Cocoon, church, cocoon, church. Ah. We hibernate. And you know, spiritually, we can do that as well. We can start getting so used to our comfort levels. We hate it when someone or something threatens the comfort that we have in our lives. And we hibernate in our routines. And we get cozy in the comfort of whatever it is that we've been doing. And sometimes that's sin. Because we love comfort. And we get cozied up with that sin and what feels good. And sometimes God is ringing the alarm. Bright, shiny face. And we're like, no. Get out of here with that song. I don't want to hear it. I'm not ready to repent. I'm ready to be comfortable. It's always interesting when someone uh, is coming out to church and you know, you know, um, yeah, I really like your church. It makes me feel comfortable. I always like think in my head, uh oh, what did we do wrong? Now, I'm not saying that's totally a bad thing. I mean, I don't want anyone to feel like not unwelcome. That's not good. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, our comfort should be challenged because the whole message of Jesus is deny yourself. Deny what? Deny what's natural and comfortable when it comes time to do what Jesus is calling us to do. A lot of the things he asks us to do, like denial of self, carrying our cross, sharing our faith, sacrifice. Sacrifice like the opposite of comfort. So we don't choose a life of comfort when we choose to follow Jesus. Amen? It's the wake-up call. What are you sleeping on? Where do you need a wake-up call today? What area of your life is cozy and under the covers and untouchable and comfortable that God is saying, uh-uh, time to let a cold draft in. Let's change it up. The wake-up call. It was a child, a young boy, Grew up fast and hard, was neglected, abandoned, and broken. And he bounced around from foster home to foster home and ended up in the streets of New York struggling to survive. And he grew up like that until he felt like enough is enough. I can't stand being lost anymore. And in his 20s, he actually invited himself to church. Saw a couple girls in an elevator with a Bible, asked them where they were going and said, can I, can I come to church? Studied the scriptures, came into the fellowship, but it didn't take. It wasn't ready. So eventually he was back out there and got caught in some of the same cycles. Another 20 years goes by. And in recent months, he heard a wake-up call. And you know, when that much time goes on, you get real used to your comfort and routines. So when the wake-up call comes, it might even be faint, but he heard it. The spiritual alarm was going off, so he started reading his Bible and started visiting different churches and then lands back here in our fellowship. He decided, this is it. I am getting right with the Lord once for all. He dove deep into the scripture has been studying vigorously on his own, brutally honest, fasting, long periods of time, praying, devoting himself for months to this process. And I have good news to share with you because Ephraim Rosado is getting baptized today right after church. Where is Ephraim? Where is Ephraim? There he is right there. 
<laughs> Got a great sense of humor, and I just admire your perseverance and your faith, Ephraim. It's going to be a great victory today. You know, as we close and the singers can come back on the stage and get set up, you know, God never counts anybody out and neither should we. Amen. I don't think the wake up call in this story was just for the girl either. I think it was for the people there, the crowds, the disciples, the parents. I think particularly it was for Jairus, the synagogue ruler. And by the way, Jairus, that's a Greek form of the Hebrew. You know what his name means? God will awaken. You think God had a plan for his life and was willing to take him to the very edge to show him his faith. And sometimes he allows us to go there too. Amen. Takes us to the edge. That wake up call isn't only for those today who are preparing for baptism or being restored to the faith. We all need to be awakened. All need to remember the saving power of Jesus. So whatever it is you're sleeping on today, however high the stakes may be, don't blink. Don't miss the message today. Amen. You have every reason to believe. Every reason is there. You have everything you need for life and godliness. Let's stand up. We're going to sing one final song. And I pray that every single one of us will be wide awake as we hear the promises of forever with our eyes open and focus on Jesus our ultimate prize. Amen.